0: We'll take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 38. In the previous weeks, we have been approaching this moment as we've been walking through John 18 and 19, going toward the cross of Christ, moving toward the cross, and now the Lord Jesus has died of His own free will. And we pick up In John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, there 500 years earlier in a moment upon which the fate of an entire people hung if it went well it meant life if it didn't go well it meant death and devastation for thousands upon thousands of people that fateful moment was the moment that a queen came around the corner in the court of the king to present herself in the king's court, and this queen's name was Esther. The book of Esther in the Old Testament is a breathtaking drama about God's rescue of his people while many of them are in captivity under Persian rule. And one of the most dramatic scenes in Esther is when Queen Esther, the Jewish queen after whom the book is named, she needs to approach her husband, the king, But in ancient Persia, no one, not even the king's wife, could approach the king without permission unless you wanted to have your life ended very quickly indeed. But the king could, in his benevolence, extend his scepter of power. He could extend his scepter towards you, indicating that you were free to approach him, free to come into his presence, free to converse with him, free to make a request, free to ask. And so Esther, to save her people, was to approach the king to expose a plot against the Jews. The Jews in the city fasted for three days and nights on her behalf, and then she put on her royal robes and she stood in the king's court where he could see her. Esther chapter 5 records, And when the king saw queen Esther standing in the court, She won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Favor upon favor, grace upon grace granted to her by a king happy to see her. Well, in much the same way, All humanity will approach the throne of God someday. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And because of sin, we're dependent on the mercy of God to extend his scepter of grace to us. But that scepter of grace, listen, is not extended to just anyone. It's extended only to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might ask, well, what must I believe? Well, in John chapters 18 and 19, we've been compiling a statement really drawn from the story itself, a statement of gospel concepts that are central, that are core to being a Christian. And so from John 18 and 19, here's what we have so far. Here's what you must believe. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled His Father's plan for His suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered Himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom, not of this world, and offers you a part in it. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. Christ's suffering carried the sorrow of your sins. You must believe that Christ's death is your only option and hope of salvation. And tonight, we add to this statement, you must believe that Christ truly died. You must believe that Christ truly died because without the death of Christ, the penalty of sin isn't paid. Without the death of Christ, we're doomed to trying to please God with our own good deeds, which will always fail because God hates the so-called good deeds of wicked, sinful men. And without the death of Christ, the scepter of God cannot be extended to you. Now, all throughout history, Many, many people have attempted to deny the death of Christ. In 1828, Heinrich Paulus wrote a book called The Life of Jesus, and he proposed in this book what he called the Swoon Theory. That Jesus wasn't actually dead when he was removed from the cross. Rather, that Jesus simply was flogged twice, lost enough blood to kill most men, was nailed to a cross all day long, was speared and had the sack around his heart punctured, went into a coma. Later, he was then buried in a sealed tomb, laid there for several days, and then got up and rolled a 6,000-pound stone away and walked out. That's the swoon theory. In 1969, a New Testament scholar by the name of Hugh Schoenfeld wrote a book called The Passover Plot. And in The Passover Plot, he alleges that Jesus enlisted the help of others to pull off what would have to be the greatest hoax of all time, that the person who gave Jesus a drink on the cross was actually giving him a knockout drug. And this knockout drug would make him appear dead. And then when he was removed from the cross, he actually was just unconscious. Going all the way back to the 2nd century, the Gnostics taught that Jesus didn't actually die, but only seemed to die. Because Jesus wasn't actually human, but only seemed to be human. And in fact, based on and copying, and we might even say plagiarizing, that Gnostic heresy, which had begun to dominate false versions of Christianity in the Arab Peninsula, copying that belief... We come to a man by the name of Muhammad, writing what we know now as the Koran. And he borrowed this idea and he wrote in the Quran in chapter 4, speaking of Jesus, in fact, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but it appeared to them as if they did. Certainly, they did not kill him. In other words, all the people standing around Golgotha, all the people standing around the cross, were looking at something, but it wasn't Jesus. They were all having a, a, some sort of hallucination at the same time, but Jesus didn't die. Now, Why would Satan, why would the evil one all through history work so hard in all these centuries since the death of Christ to rewrite history? Why would he attempt to cover over and to cover up the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, very simply, because the death of Christ is the core truth of the gospel of salvation from sin. The wages of sin is death. But Romans 5, verse 6 says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Two verses later, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, how important is the death of Christ? 1 Corinthians fifteen three says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, you must believe the death of Christ. And to make certain you have plenty of evidence upon which to base this belief, the Bible has amassed a massively detailed eyewitness account in four Gospels, details of the death of Christ. And the biggest evidence of all is the fact that Christ was buried. He was buried. And that's the focus of our main text this Good Friday evening in John 19, beginning in verse 38. From this text, I'd like to give you three reasons that we are compelled that you must believe the death of Christ. I'm going to give them to you up front. Here they are. Here are the three reasons that you must believe the death of Christ. First, God predestined Christ's burial. God predestined Christ's burial. Second, God placed Christ's burial. He placed Christ's burial in Third, God proved Christ's burial. He proved his burial, and we're going to spend most of our time on that last reason. But the first reason that we're compelled to believe the death of Christ, God predestined Christ's burial. Now, obviously, God predestining, predetermining something, such as the burial of Christ, it can only be shown if we see a Bible passage written before the actual event, right? That makes sense. Well, how about 700 years before? 700 years earlier, the great servant song of Isaiah, chapter 53, prophesied in exquisite detail the coming death of Christ, in fact, down to the very fact of his burial. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let me read that to you again. There's important details there. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. They made his grave. It's a word that means they assigned his grave. To whom? With the wicked. This is a plural noun, more than one. And with a rich man, a singular noun, one man in his death. Now this is very, very important. This distinction in Hebrew is a big deal Because if Isaiah is simply making a comparison between different classes of people, such as the wicked and the rich, then he would have used two singular nouns, but he didn't. He uses a plural, wicked men, and then a singular, and a rich man. Jesus was originally assigned a shameful grave with the two criminals, men, with whom he was crucified, But Jesus would receive an honorable burial given the tomb of one man owned by Joseph of Arimathea. So his burial in the grave of a wealthy man, a man who had influence, who had substance, a grave that said, this man did something that mattered, that was right, it was appropriate, it was honoring, it was worshipful. And by the way, this makes Jesus very easy to identify as the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53, who else has been crucified, Isaiah 53, 5, assigned a grave with criminals, yet given the grave of a rich man, Isaiah 53, 9. Who else bears away the sin of all who would believe in him, Isaiah 53, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12. And who else had lived a perfect life, verse 9. This can only be the Lord Jesus. This is the one spoken of in the 8th century B.C. that God predestined even down to Christ's burial. But not only did God predestine Christ's burial, a second reason that we're compelled to believe the death of Christ, God placed Christ's burial. He placed his burial. Now, last week, we spent some time examining the location of the crucifixion of Christ, which we see now also is the location of the burial of Christ. And we see this in verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That's worth our time to revisit this location, to go back here and look at it once again, remembering the contrast between the horror and the agony of the death of Christ and where it took place because they were very different. And so just to review for a moment, we remember that the word for garden here, this isn't your, your little six by six plot that you have in your backyard, This is something substantial. In fact, it speaks of a well-cared-for orchard. It was springtime. This garden, as any big garden in and around Jerusalem, would have olive trees, most likely cypress trees, certainly had fig trees, date palms. Right exactly at this time of the year, the pomegranate trees, which were very popular in and around Jerusalem, would be blooming with these brilliant red flowers. The garden would have any number of types of indigenous flowers, such as the meadow saffron, lilies, irises, types of roses. Spices would be grown in the garden as well. Spices such as coriander and cumin and dill and sage and others. And so the the scent of these flowers and these spices and the beauty of all the trees, the different levels of the trees and the shrubbery and the flowers, how beautiful it would be. And we pointed out that it was, it was almost a paradox. It was peculiar. Here, Jesus is on a cross, bleeding, dying, and yet surrounded by tremendous beauty, and he couldn't have any of it. The beauty of the earth he created was no longer for him because now he was associated not with being a blessing, but with being the cursed one, the condemned one. But is it an accident, is it a coincidence that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried in a beautiful garden? Listen, nothing highlighted in Scripture is ever a footnote, nothing is ever a meaningless detail. Not at all. This picture of a garden is a picture of the victory of God over sin, a death that would end death. Now, I know you know your Bibles, you're very astute, and your mind is already traveling back. You're going back in the pages of Scripture, back and back and back and back, all the way back to Genesis 2, aren't you? Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you already know what happened, don't you? The man, and soon his created wife, living in this pristine perfection of God's blessing as shown by his gift of a garden, they took the one law that God gave them. And they rebelled against God. And they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's will. And now the curse of sin and death and the grave has come upon mankind because of the rebellion in the garden. In Genesis 3.24 records, he drove the man out. He drove the man out. It was in a garden that sin and death and the grave were empowered. And now in a garden tomb, death. And the grave are defeated and crushed. And through the substitutionary death of Christ, all who have faith in him are now let back into the garden. Now, how does that work? Well, it works like this. One of the criminals on the cross next to Jesus begged Jesus for mercy. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus promised him on the spot because of his faith He said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Greek word meaning an enclosed or a walled garden. You remember that in the Garden of Eden was also the tree of life? Well, God kept it, it still exists. The resurrected Jesus Christ promised in Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Listen. God placed Christ's burial exactly in the right place. To send a very clear message that fellowship with him was once Lost in a garden, and now it is regained in a garden such that all who believe will spend eternity in the bigger garden, what Jesus called paradise. Well, God predestined Christ's burial, God placed Christ's burial. The third reason that we're compelled to believe the death of Christ, God proved Christ's burial. He proved Christ's burial. Now, in the court of law, the most powerful proof is eyewitness testimony. And the character of the witness is very important. And here in John 19, we have two impeccable witnesses as to the burial of Christ. And their testimony is flawless. And I want to spend the rest of our time examining their testimony. I want to give you four proofs that their testimony is absolutely airtight. It's unassailable. The first proof. That their testimony is flawless, we'll call their love. Their love. And of course, the men we're speaking of are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus here in our text. Let me start with the love of Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 38 tells us that Pontius Pilate gave Joseph permission to take the body of Jesus. This was very unusual because someone executed for sedition and rebellion was generally left on the cross until vultures had come or... Perhaps the body was thrown into the same crude grave as the other criminals. Joseph had been a secret disciple of Christ. That is, until now, there's no secret anymore. and Scripture doesn't indict Joseph for this. It's just listed as a fact. As a matter of fact, Jesus' own disciples had to be secretive at times. The next chapter of John shows them meeting secretly in a room with a door locked behind them for fear of Jewish leaders. Joseph was from Arimathea. This was a city north of Jerusalem, right on the border of the central province of Samaria. Arimathea is famous for being the birthplace of the great prophet Samuel when the town was called Ramah, Arimathea. All four gospels identify Joseph as being of Arimathea, meaning meaning when you said Joseph of Arimathea, everybody knew who you were talking about. He was well-known. But Mark 15, verse 43, gives an important detail about Joseph of Arimathea. He was, quote, himself looking for the kingdom of God. He wasn't like the Jewish leaders who crucified Christ. They were trying to make their own kingdom by rejecting the king. But Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom. And by definition, anyone who's looking for the kingdom is looking for whom? For the king. Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph was wealthy. He was a rich man. The same chapter tells us that Joseph owned this tomb. Probably owned the garden as well. And it was a new tomb, we're told. It was a tomb hewn out of solid rock, which meant it was very expensive. It took a lot of work, a lot of laborers, very, very costly. It was meant to be a family tomb for many hundreds of years Matthew tells us that this was Joseph's own tomb, one he had made for himself and for his family subsequent to him, and he gave it to Jesus. Or, as the resurrection of Christ would correct, he loaned it to Jesus. There's no question that Joseph of Arimathea loved Christ. By the way, I I think it's amazing, and it shows the, the fact that God is so consistent in Scripture God gave Jesus a man named Joseph to take care of him and honor him at his birth. And God gave Jesus a man named Joseph to take care of him and honor him at his death as well. Joseph of Arimathea loved Christ. What about Nicodemus? Well, we already know him, don't we? We're familiar with Nicodemus. He's identified in verse 39 as the one who earlier had come to Jesus by night. And in one of the most famous conversations in all of the Bible... We see Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, a Jewish leader who comes, and he makes a true statement about Christ, but still within adequate knowledge. John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us the story. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, here's his true statement. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And here's his reasoning. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Jesus gave him more information. He added information to him. He said in the very next verse, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this puzzled Nicodemus. This was odd to him. And so Jesus explained more to him. He explained that the Spirit of God gives new spiritual birth to whomever he pleases, And he used an illustration. He said that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. And the wind blows wherever it pleases and goes wherever it wants. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit gives new spiritual birth. It is God's initiative to save. And so Jesus and Nicodemus continued conversing. And of course, Nicodemus was the original hearer of the most famous saying in all of the Bible... When Jesus said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you get to the end of this conversation in John 3 and you kind of are looking, hoping for some sort of conclusion. You don't get one. It's inconclusive. We don't know what happened. Now we do. Now we do. Now we see where he stands. Now Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Christ. Jesus had told Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit would give spiritual life just as the wind blows where it will. And at some point, the wind had blown. And Nicodemus now loved Christ his Lord. He now loved Christ his Savior. Nicodemus had first met Christ at night and heard the good news of salvation, and now he comes once again at night. At the end of the day, to render a loving service to his Lord, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus loved Christ. Now, you might say, well, these two guys just loving Jesus doesn't prove he was died and he was buried. Okay, well, let's take it to a different level. Who were these men? Were they just some random guys pulled off the street who maybe were trying to lie to the world about the supposed death of Christ? No. The first proof that their testimony is flawless is their love, but let's take it to a higher level. The second proof is their reputation. Their reputation. These two witnesses weren't chosen at random by God to be the chief eyewitnesses to the burial of Christ. They were men of impeccable character. Let's look at them. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? Well, at the outset, we see that Pilate knew him. You, you don't just stroll into Pilate's presence. Pilate's presence. They were already acquainted, so Pilate knew Joseph in some context. What was that context? Well, we've already seen that Joseph was wealthy. That would have made him known among the leadership of Rome. And Pilate would know, by the way, that he was crucifying criminals in a garden probably owned by Joseph. But Mark fifteen forty three gives us further clarity about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. And now we have to say, wait a minute. Hang on a second here. You mean to tell me that Joseph of Arimathea was there when the Sanhedrin issued a death sentence to Jesus Christ? That's right. That's right. But Luke 23, 51 tells us, quote, he had not consented to their decision and action. And it gives the reason he was looking for the kingdom of God. And apparently Joseph knew who the king was. What does this mean? It meant that Joseph made his support of Christ known at the very least through his vote of innocence. That apparently the council only needed a majority. And the majority had won the vote against Christ. But Mark 15, 43 doesn't just tell us that he was a member of the council. It says he was, quote, a respected member of the council. And Luke 23, 50 says that Joseph was a good and a righteous man. Listen, the Bible never says that an unbeliever is a good and a righteous man. That little phrase is the highest praise you really could give a man. The only other time that phrase is used in all the New Testament of anyone or anything being good and righteous is speaking of the Bible. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that the wicked Jewish leaders on the council also, they might not have liked how Joseph of Arimathea voted. They might not have liked his stand for Christ, but none of them could call him a liar. His reputation was impeccable. What about Nicodemus? Well, Jesus identified him with great specificity in John 3. He called him the, definite article, the teacher of Israel. He was a recognized master of the scriptures and established religious authority. He was revered, called the teacher of Israel. He was the one looked to with the most confidence, with the most respect. In fact, he had the ear of the most respected leaders in Jerusalem, John 7, verse 50 records a very brief exchange with Nicodemus challenging them and challenging their knowledge of Scripture. So listen, you couldn't have picked two men with greater, more solid reputations to be eyewitnesses of the burial of Christ. Let me give you a third proof that their testimony was flawless. Not only their love at a higher level, their respect, but the third proof is their motives. Their motives, these men had nothing to gain whatsoever by now proclaiming their loyalty to Christ. In fact, in a very short time in Jerusalem, it would become extremely dangerous to be a follower of Christ. They had nothing to gain, humanly speaking, by declaring themselves and potentially had everything to lose up to and including their lives. So what was their motive concerning the burial of Christ? Well, you be the judge. Nicodemus had met Joseph Very likely they'd already planned this and Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in weight. It's about 100 Roman pounds at that time. The spices were for wrapping the body in with the burial clothes. But this was a a very unusual amount. This was a massive amount of spices. Basically, it represented a fortune. This was like cashing in your IRA. It was that level. Very, very unusual Except in one case. There was only one case in which that amount of spices was normal. And that was when you buried a king. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, knowing the scriptures probably better than anyone alive at that moment, certainly would remember the royal Psalm 45 that says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes. What is their motive? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, are honoring their king. Certainly they're confused and shocked that their king is dead. They weren't expecting the resurrection of Christ. This amount of spices was meant to last a very, very long time. And Nevertheless, they were doing what they could in that tragic moment. Listen, the testimony of Joseph and Nicodemus is flawless. Proof number one, their love. Proof number two, their reputation. Proof number three, their motives. But proof number four, most convincing of all, their actions. Their actions. Why are Joseph and Nicodemus the most flawless witnesses to the burial of Christ? Well, very simply, because they're the ones who buried him. They're the ones who took the body. Verse 38 says they took away his body. What does this mean? It means they came to the cross. They lowered it down. They laid the patibulum, the the crossbeam down on the ground they had to wrench the nails out of jesus wrists wrench the nails out of jesus feet they would take effort they would get blood all over themselves they probably carried his body close to the tomb likely had a couple of servants there to help them they would then according to tradition have washed his body with their own hands They wrapped the body of Jesus in grave clothes, many, many feet of strips of cloth, mixing in the spices as they went. And they placed his body, now weighing upwards of 250 pounds, in the tomb. When the tomb had been constructed, a a groove was carved in front of the low entrance to the tomb. And off to the side was put a large round stone wheel weighing up to 6,000 pounds and it was placed in that groove to be rolled in front of the entrance. But this was a new tomb. It was designed for multiple corpses, but it had never been used, so the stone was still off to one side. Well, Matthew 27, 60 tells us that the well-known, the wealthy, the respected, the good and righteous member of the council, Joseph of Arimathea, and certainly with the help of Nicodemus, the well-known premier teacher of Israel, that they leaned down and they braced themselves and rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And thus they sealed the body of Christ in a tomb no living man could escape, proving the death of Christ. And listen, this was no ordinary death. Back in Isaiah 53.9, Isaiah said they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Death in Hebrew is plural, literally his deaths. Now this is what's known in Hebrew as a plural of amplification or a plural of majesty. This means that the plural is referring to a singular thing, but with an intensity, an intensified emphasis. Now Isaiah isn't just pointing out the death of Christ, he's pointing out the supreme death of Christ, the magnificent death of Christ, the significant death of Christ, the noteworthy death of Christ. We put it this way, the death of Christ was the death to beat all death because the death of Christ purchased the death of death. Did you catch that? Listen, this is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, but it goes on, that he was buried. Someday, when you stand before the throne of God, when you come around the corner at your death into the courtyard of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he demands an accounting, when the day of judgment is upon you, God the Father will look to the one who was slain for the sins of all who would believe, and he will check to see if your name is in the book of life. And if you have believed, if you have come to Christ, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as being one for whom he died, if you have repented of your sin, if you have humbled yourself and asked for mercy, then just like Esther entered into the court of the king, the royal scepter of God will extend to you and you will enter the garden of God into paradise let's pray our father we come to you now with gratitude and thanksgiving for the the great news the good news of the gospel of christ and we are thankful to you lord for the clarity with which you have made it so abundantly obvious to us that christ died in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried Because without the death of Christ, we are hopeless. We are without hope. We are lost. There is no payment for sin. There is no propitiation. There is no satisfying the wrath of God. Sin is not expiated. It is not taken away. And we die in our sins. And we pay the penalty for all eternity. Never to be paid because sin is eternal. But he did die. And he was buried And just like Joseph of Arimathea did not occupy the tomb with his name on it. Instead, Jesus did. Jesus occupied the tomb with my name on it. And with the name of every person who would come to faith in Christ. And so we give you thanks. And now, Father, as we approach a time to remember the body and blood of Christ to remember his precious death, to remember the broken body and the, the, the bleeding that he endured. We pray that you would be with us at this moment in our homes, wherever we are, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening, for the Lord's table, as you're gathered in your homes during this historic time in our world, I know that you long to gather together. We all miss you. We miss one another. One of the core parts of our worship gathering, really what many have said, and I I believe this is the high point of Christian worship, is the Lord's Supper. The remembrance of the body and the blood of Christ. But during this time when we can't gather, we can gather in spirit and in truth, right where we are, and take the Lord's table together together. It's not optimal, it's not perfect, but we are commanded to remember the body and blood of Christ and so we do so now as together as we are able to be. So have your communion elements ready there before you and we will celebrate the Lord's table together. I'd like to have us meditate on 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's worship in song together as we prepare to receive the bread. Peter said that we are ransomed from the futile, the sinful ways inherited from our fathers, who are our fathers, going all the way back to Adam. We've inherited the sin nature of our father Adam, and yet Jesus ransomed us. He bought us back as we were under the death penalty since the wages of sin is death. But Jesus received in his body the wrath of God, which was due to us. And so to remember this, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's remember the body of Christ together.
1: Of our bonds of peace, the table of the keys. of our Savior Jesus Christ torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal the death that brings us life paid the price to make us one. So we share In this bread of life, we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the King. Blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember, he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share this bread of life and drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the king. So with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share Proclaim Christ will come again and will join.
0: Peter goes on to say that nothing such as the world's wealth, like silver, nothing like gold, could ransom us, but only blood. And it had to be the blood of a perfect man, the God man, Jesus Christ, which Peter says is precious blood, precious blood. So many hymns written through the centuries about the blood of christ and so as he commanded us after supper he took the cup also and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me let's remember the blood of christ